Well, good morning. We're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us. Come on, we believe this word to be infallible, inspired. Lord, many today uh, have walked away from the fact that this is truth, but for us, God, this is bread. This is the breath of the Spirit. So as we apply our minds to read, to understand, to learn, we ask that your spirit would cause our hearts to burn afresh. Come on, we want to love you with all our being today. In Jesus' precious name, somebody say amen. Amen. We've talked before about the Holy Club. Uh, the Holy Club would have been um, those Oxford students, John uh, and Charles Wesley and Whitfield were a part of the Holy Club. John was leading And they were really known for their kind of rigorous discipline um, in matters of of fasting, of giving. They visited the poor. They visited the prisoner every week. Uh, They really, they're called the Holy Club because they're they're kind of fanatics. Like they're very, very disciplined. Uh, We've said before that that John and, and Charles actually, they came on a trip to Savannah where they tried to do kind of missionary work. It was just a failure. And John on the way back um, was on a boat with some Moravians who had hot faith, and he thought, man, they have something I don't have. And and so he went to a Moravian meeting at Aldersgate. It's there at Aldersgate where he said that his heart was strangely warmed, where he where he believed that he really had an encounter with, with, with Jesus and was born again as the commentary to Romans was read, Martin Luther's commentary to Romans. And um, uh, we know from history that that Charles, his brother, the hymn writer, also had an experience with the Lord on Pentecost just kind of weeks before where he would say that he was born again. And so we have Anglican ministers who have not really been born again until years later. Well, after after the Aldersgate experience, there's there's a season that, that John and Charles and George Whitfield all talk about in their diaries, um, a season at Fetter Lane. And it was at... Fetter Lane that Wesley said that they really had a Pentecostal experience. Wesley said it was there. This is a quote from his diaries. So many living witnesses have given that his hand is still stretched out to heal. So at Fetter's Lane, there, there were people being healed physically that signs and wonders are even now wrought by his holy child, Jesus. He wrote in his journal that, that he, along with Whitfield and other brothers, they were present at a love feast at Fetter Lane with about 60 believers and about three in the morning. So they're praying at three in the morning. When's the last time we did that? As we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. And as soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be Lord. George Whitfield wrote of the same events. It was a Pentecostal season indeed. Sometimes whole nights were spent in prayer. Often we had been filled as with new wine. Often I have seen them overwhelmed with the divine presence and cry out, will God indeed dwell with men upon the earth? How dreadful is this place? This is no other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. So what we have at at Fetter's Lane, uh, Fetter Lane is, these holy club boys, these incredibly disciplined, rigorously disciplined religious men, 
who have now at Aldersgate and on Pentecost, they've been born again. They've come to receive the gospel by faith alone. They've realized that they don't earn standing before God on the base of their rigorous discipline, but faith alone in the finished work of Jesus. And it was there again, Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. But what we find is that they've, it's, it's weeks later at Fetter Lane where they begin to have Pentecostal experience. And they're up all hours of the night praying. John Wesley says he's actually having kind of an argument with Whitfield later about deliverances. John Wesley says people are being delivered of demons. Sick people are being healed. There are crazy signs and wonders. And God is moving in great power. What we see in the life of these men is that they transition from rigorous discipline to a place of spirit-empowered, Jesus-loving, infused men of God who carry the gospel to the corners of the earth. And at some point in your life, the new wine of the Spirit's presence and of the free grace of the gospel has to break the religious spirit and tendencies that we all carry. The Christian life is not a life that says, watch how motivated and disciplined I can be to perform. The Christian life is a life baptized in the power and the fire of the Spirit that says Jesus is so beautiful and wonderful. I'd go anywhere. I'd say anything. I'll pray all hours of the night because I haven't had enough of him yet. And at some point in your Christian life, you need to have a Pentecostal season. Now, I was trained in, in, in traditional, classic Pentecostal education. We talk about the baptism of the Spirit being this um, this the secondary and filling of the Holy Spirit that's often marked with tongues or prophecy. Um, Wesley and Whitfield, they wouldn't have used that same language. You could go down the line. Edwards might not have used that same language. But every season where God moved, people had a Pentecostal season where they laid their face in the ground and they prayed until they knew that they knew that they knew that the glory of God had come upon them. And tongues and prophecy and healing and all these things come with it. But, but I'm just suggesting that if your Christian life um, has, has not been marked by the glory of God, if you've not dug deep wells of intimacy with God in the place of prayer, there's no better time than now than to start. And the beauty of this church, the beauty of, of our community, is that there are people in our midst who have dug deep, deep wells, who have walked with God through great seasons of power and who walked with God through great seasons of drought faithfully. I think God is asking you to dig, man. Now, that's not what we came to talk about. <laughs> Miss Jackie said, yes, it is. <laughs> but, but as we're reading, uh, in, we're going to read Jesus today saying to the, to the Pharisees and the disciples of John, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And what he's saying is, I'm doing something totally different. And the old wine skin of religion is going to be broke by the new wine of joy and fellowship and intimacy with Messiah. Now, let me read you the text and we'll, we'll do our best to kind of break it down here. Verse 18, you guys with me? Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. 
but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, last week we read as Jesus called Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, to come and be a disciple. We said that Matthew was sitting by the sea collecting taxes. He's clearly um, taxing uh, exports and imports as people come to a port to trade goods. He's sitting there taxing. And tax collectors, we read, are are people who are greatly looked down upon because they're not hoping for the Messiah to come and deliver Israel from Roman oppression. They're taking money from their neighbors to fund Roman oppression. And so it's a great betrayal to the Jewish heritage and hope to be a tax collector. Well, Jesus really doesn't care. He's into recycling people, man. He doesn't care about the mess you were. He's totally focused on what he's going to make you. And so he says to Matthew, to Levi, why don't you get your butt up and follow me? And so he does. Levi follows. And as we read in the text, we find uh, Jesus now, he's eating his dinner with many tax collectors and sinners. And kind of the implications of the text, he says he's reclining at the table. Scholars pretty well think that this is not just a normal dinner, but they're feasting. They're celebrating. It seems clear that, that Levi has invited other tax collectors, his community to come and encounter Jesus. And Jesus is, is good with that. And, the, and last week we read, as the Pharisees said, why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, the physician comes for the sick, not for the healthy. In other words, Jesus said, what I came to do is to break the patterns of sin and release people into the patterns of the kingdom. So Jesus says, of course I come for tax collectors. Now, as we turn today, it seems that the question is no longer about the attendees of the feast, but the feast itself. Because what seems to be happening is that this, as Jesus feasts with Matthew and his friends, the tax collectors, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees are fasting. So they're hungry. I don't know if you've uh, done much fasting, but I can tell you this. You will be grumpy, okay? They're grumpy, man. And Jesus and his disciples are fat and happy. They've got bread. They're dipping around. They're high-fiving, snacking. And the Pharisees and, and the disciples of John, man, that's not cool. Not cool at all. So it seems that they're in a, in a season of fasting. And what we have when you look at the text closely is we have actually three movements colliding. Okay, the first movement would be the movement of John. John the Baptist had a much greater influence on Judaism than we recognize today. You can find, um, for instance, Josephus talks about John the Baptist. You can find um, movements and writings years later of people who kind of followed John's message of repentance, of baptism, and of hope in the gospel. And so John's disciples are John-like. Okay, and John lives in the desert. He fasts. He, he doesn't participate in the pleasures of life, but he's longing for Messiah. So we have John's disciples who come with the disciples of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are, are not necessarily the most influential group at this point. The Sadducees really have all the power, all the money, and all the influence. But the Pharisees will become the, the forefathers of Orthodox Judaism today. They're rigorous. They're disciplined. They are faithful to the letter of the law. It, to many of us, we say, why are they so nitpicky with the law? Well, when you think about the temple being destroyed, the first temple being destroyed because Israel was not faithful to keep the law. And when Ezra slides in and they, they reestablish the second temple, second temple Judaism really birthed like the idea of synagogue. Where did the idea of synagogue come from? That's not in the Old Testament. 
It came from the, the movement from, to an extent, from Ezra the scribe saying, hey, we need to make sure we understand the law. And so they gather at, at not at the temple all the time, but at, at little houses and synagogues to teach the law because they believe if they forsake it, they'll be judged again. And so the heart of it is this kind of, let's make sure we obey God so that we don't experience judgment. So we have these two, you would call them renewal movements. They're two groups of people who are trying to renew Israel back to the law and back to faith and back to faithfulness to the scriptures. And then we have a new movement, Jesus's thing he's got going on. So three movements of people collide. The two movements, um, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're fasting and Jesus and his disciples are feasting. Now, what we know from history and from the scriptures is that the law mandates one fast. So according to scripture, the Jews should fast on the day of atonement. That's the only mandated fast in scriptures. But we see in the Old Testament, for instance, just, just, you know, slap your brain and think, um, God gave you that for a reason. I don't know if you know that, but it, it actually works if you just use it. Um, that's, that's news to our century. Um, think about Esther, right? Her, her uncle comes and says, Hey, you need to go into the king and you need to petition him to not have all the Jews murdered. And she says, I can't go in there unless I'm invited. And he says, Oh, yes, you will. And so she says, This is what we'll do. We'll fast three days. You fast, I'll fast, and then I'll go. And in this instance, we see fasting as a kind of petition for the favor of God and the Spirit's working. And so they fast because there's a trial ahead and they're really trying to say, God, please help us. But then you could think about Jonah preaching in Nineveh. You remember when Jonah preaches in Nineveh, finally after he, you know, the whole gets eaten by a fish thing and being spit up and he goes and he preaches in Nineveh and the king of Nineveh, which would have been like the most wicked city at the time, the capital of Babylon, the king of, or the, the, the king of Nineveh declares a fast. Do you remember? Sackcloth and ashes. Everyone fast. This was a sign of repentance, weeping, and mourning. So we see fasting in the Old Testament, but it's not mandated except for on the Day of Atonement. But by the time of Jesus, it was very normal for the Pharisees and for the disciples of John to fast two days a week. Um, they, they fasted on, on Monday and Wednesday. And essentially they fasted from sundown to sundown. So you could eat dinner Sunday night and you wouldn't eat again until Monday night. Now I've told you before that the Didache, which is one of the earliest Christian documents, um, it says that when you fast, you should not fast as the hypocrites do on Monday and, and, or Tuesday and Thursday. I'm sorry, but you should fast on Wednesday and Friday, not like the hypocrites meaning the Jews. I was, um, I don't know, 20. And I had known this from reading that this is tradition. The early church fasted twice a week. Um, again, this kind of, sometimes it's called a Jewish fast, a sundown to sundown fast. And, and um, I was ready. I was ready to be used of God. And so I was fasting uh, twice a week, living in a single wide trailer with a mattress on the ground and books just surrounding me with a few guitars. And that's all I needed. Okay. All I needed. And I was thinking this week, I was, uh, I was preaching at a youth group. I was going to preach at a youth group of middle schoolers. Okay. When you preach to a youth group of middle schoolers, you should bring out your potty jokes. Okay. 
But, but, but Caleb, I had fasted for days. Okay. And I was hungry and mad. Water fasted. And I came into this middle school youth group and I preached on Hannah being barren. That was something Leonard Ravenhill used to focus on. And I preached, we have not a move of God because you don't pray. 12 year olds. And I thought, good God, revival is coming. You know, they just stared at me like a deer in headlights. But there, there is something. Fasting, fasting isn't a New Testament principle. We'll, we'll get there. But there's, there, there can be a religious tendency to use fasting to perform or to earn God's favor. There's a, there's a sincere fasting that, that just wants to love Jesus and wants more of God out of earnest desire. And then there's a works-based, performance-based fasting that Caleb thought if I didn't eat for a couple of days, then the middle schoolers would become great intercessors in the things of God. So two traditions, they stand in front of Jesus and they say, why, why don't your disciples fast? They're hungry and they're tired. We know from Jesus's words in Matthew 6, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. They've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who is in secret. So Jesus teaches that the disciples will fast, but he says we shouldn't fast like the hypocrites. So what did we just learn about Jewish fasting of the day? That, well, some believe that they were putting ashes on their heads and sometimes ashes on their faces to kind of a display of their mourning. They're mourning their sin. They're mourning, uh, they're lamenting the brokenness of Israel. But you and I know that there's something beating in our chest that just loves religion, just loves it. And whether or not you're ready to recognize that today is a great, a great sign of whether or not you're ready to mature in the Christian faith. Because at some point, you've got to look yourself in the mirror and recognize that you like to feel holy. And when you begin to go down that road of liking to feel holy, you begin to want to be seen as holy. You begin to compare yourself to those around you. And you slip, slippery slope slide into this kind of pious spirit that actually doesn't love God. You love yourself. You're not celebrating and loving the bridegroom. You're celebrating and loving your own piety. So they come to Jesus. They're, they're exercising their discipline. They're hungry. They're tired. Their faces are white. They're dressed poorly. They're, they're dragging their feet. They're saying, we're mourning the sinfulness of Israel and you eat bread. And what Jesus does, we, when we read too quickly, we miss this is he's actually going to quote John the Baptist. Why would he be quoting John the Baptist? Because he's talking to the followers of John the Baptist. He seems to be not be so concerned with the Pharisees. They're a problem. Um, but he's going to show some grace to the disciples of John the Baptist. And what he does is he says, when the bridegroom is with us, we don't fast. Now, why is he calling himself the bridegroom? Well, because John the Baptist called him the bridegroom. John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 29 through 30, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, who stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy 
of mine is now complete. So I must decrease and he must increase. So when John the Baptist's followers come, they say, look, Jesus is, and his disciples are baptizing more people than you. What are they saying? Their movement is growing more than your movement, John. Compete! Shouldn't you be competing? And John says, no, he's the bridegroom. And, and when the bridegroom comes, you don't compete for, for his bride. You celebrate, you shout, and you dance. And John says, oh, I'm going to decrease, and he's going to increase. So now John's followers come, and they say, why don't, why don't you fast, Jesus? And Jesus says, don't you remember what John said? I'm the bridegroom. And this is a celebration. Now, further, we talk a lot about Jesus being the bridegroom. It's beautiful imagery. But in the Old Testament, the bridegroom is, is never a messianic symbol. When the Old Testament talks about the bridegroom, the bridegroom is always God himself. So for instance, Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Who is Israel's husband? The, their maker. And then Hosea 2, 19 through 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So John says he's the bridegroom and the Old Testament says that the bridegroom is God. So Jesus is saying to the disciples of John and to the Pharisees, you long for, you fast, you weep, and you cry for Messiah to come. Here I am. It's no longer a time to cry. It's a time to celebrate. And furthermore, I am not just the son of David. I am the son of the most high. I am Yahweh. I am your maker. Rejoice. Jesus says they will fast when the groom is taken away. And there he's referring to his own crucifixion and the season that we live in anticipating a second coming. And we do fast. But when we fast, we do not fast primarily to try to earn God's favor or try to prove our diligence or try to prove to those around us that I'm better than them at religion. We fast primarily because our hearts long for the presence of Jesus. The bride fasts because she wants more of Jesus. Then he moves to the famous cloth analogy. Now, the cloth, when, when there's a, a hole in a piece of cloth, you could think about jeans. They didn't have jeans, obviously. But if there was a, a hole in a piece of cloth, the sun causes cloth to shrink. You wash it over time, it shrinks. And so the cloth, the old cloth, it doesn't have any more stretch. It's been stretched, shrunken out. It doesn't it have any more give. So if you've got a hole in an old cloth and you put a new cloth on it, as the new cloth starts to shrink and the old cloth doesn't have any stretch, it just breaks and creates a bigger hole. So Jesus says, I am, I am doing something new. Your movements are old cloth. Don't try to force my movement into yours. And then he says, and, and wine, you know, the, the, the new wine can't be put in old wine skin, wine skin. Uh, it, it, it swells as the wine ferments. And, but, but after old wine's been sitting in an old wineskin for a while, the wineskin doesn't have any more give. 
put new wineskin and it's just going to bust. Jesus says there's got to be new wines, new movement. And what he's really getting at, and we just take four or five minutes to, to ponder this here for a second. What he's really getting at is this. This new movement, this new faith, it will not primarily be about rigorous discipline. This new movement will not primarily be about mourning your own sin with sackcloth and ashes. There will be moments of of repentance and mourning sin, no doubt. This new movement primarily will be a celebration of the king himself. The the culture of church, listen, I mean, I, Y'all are half asleep today. I'm going to throw something at you if you don't sit up. The, the culture of church, too many of us, too many of us think about church as like a gym membership. And it's like, you know, I need to get back in church because I need to be, I need to focus on my spiritual disciplines again. And, and spiritual disciplines are a thing. I'm not denying that. But this isn't, this is not a gym. I probably wouldn't be here if it was. Okay, and, and this Christianity, this is not a diet. This isn't keto. This isn't your vegan thing. Or your live, eat to live, not live to eat. This isn't a set of regulations to make you healthier. This is a stinking feast. And Jesus is in the room. And he comes with bread and wine. And he says, celebrate, rejoice. Let your heart feast on me. But we get stuck in these ruts where we're just looking at ourselves. And if I could just say, the absolute worst of me, the worst seasons of my spiritual life were seasons where I I started to, my, one of my mentors would call it navel gazing. Started to look too much at me. And I start to go, okay, these are the areas that I need to improve. Okay. And so I do my Bible plan every day and I pray for this said amount of time and I could do more and I need to give more here. And then I need to probably serve more people here. And so, and then I, then I start to do it. I start to put into place the diet plan. Okay. And some of you guys like me, you're good at following rules. Rules are not a big deal for you. So you put into place your diet plan and you stay away from the carbs. And you, you get up earlier. Get up early in the morning so you can have more time in prayer. And you stay up later and you read more. And then this is the worst part about it. You start to grade yourself and you go, I'm doing pretty good. You start to look at your own report card and you go, shoot, I prayed for two hours a day this week. And Seth is a slob. He's an absolute slob. And, and, and you, you start to, you start to, you start to love your own press, man. And, and you're, this is the, the worst, the worst of me is when I get to this place where, and, and I'll just say this frankly, if, if some of you guys have any measure of natural gifting on your life, um, in whatever field, maybe, maybe you're talented musically, um, what musicians can do is they can do this. They can get religious. I can outfast you. I can outpray you. 
because they're talented a little bit here with the fingers, you know, tickling the ivory. And they get up on the stage and they start expressing their natural gift. They start saying to themselves, I am anointed, man. Look at me. And, and, and as a young man, um, I don't know if this is true. I've never read this. But if, in my early 20s, like I could focus. I could sit down and read for four hours. And it was fun. Maybe it was the lack of children. I don't know. But I'll, I'll tell you, and, and Seth probably tell you the truth. In ministry school, I think I outread everybody. Seth might, Seth might have been my only competition. I outread everybody. And um, Seth and I probably together felt, we at least felt like we outprayed everybody. And I was, I was doing it. I was, but, but guys, I was not outreading everybody because I had a heart full of fiery affection for Jesus. I was competing. And when you start to compete and grade yourself, what you begin to do is spit on the bride of Jesus. And you start to look around and you go, why aren't you, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you fast? Haven't you seen what I'm doing? And you don't read enough. You don't pray enough. And you're a slob in the spirit. And the reason we don't have revival is because none of you are like me. Then we'd have revival. And I'm telling you, man, I've been down that road more than once. And I've lived that life more than once. And I can be disciplined. I can fast. I can pray. I can read. Um, but sometimes all that does is give me a really big head. And Jesus is saying through this text, the emphasis of this new movement will not be personal religious expression. It will be new wine in the new wineskin and that I am in the room. I was thinking this morning, I, I, uh, I was working at, in ministry later. I was in ministry and I was tired. Um, I'm not a fan. I probably told you this before. I'm not a fan of anyone who pretends like all of their life is, is, is pure Pentecostal joy, zeal. Like, like people who pretend like every day they wake up with the biggest smile on their face because the glory of God is upon them all the time. It's baloney. Okay. Anyone who's walked with God for a great season of time would tell you there are hard seasons. There are lonely seasons. There are dry seasons. I have no idea why God makes us walk through them, but he does. Okay. And if you haven't been through a dry season, you probably should sit down and shut up. Okay. Cause you got some things to learn, some things coming your way. And I was in a dry season, just a, just a worn out dry season. And, and we were going to a funeral the next day and it wasn't an easy funeral. It was, the, it was the, the death of children. And, uh, I was laying in bed that night and I was praying, God, I've got my disciplines are in place. I'm reading my Bible every day, praying every day. I'm doing all the things, Lord, but I am exhausted. And I'm dry and I'm frustrated and, 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 and I'll keep doing it. Come on, saint. You know what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll keep doing the things, Lord. I will. I'll keep, I'll keep, I'll keep serving your church. But God, I have no, no power in my soul or desire for God in my soul. And I, and I laid down to sleep that night and I had this moment of, um, I don't know if it was a dream or a vision or what. You know, Ezekiel talks about being caught up into the heavens by his hair. Like the Lord grabbed him by his hair and yanked him up. And I had this dream this night that was just quick. But in the dream, it was, um, I was being caught up into the heavens, being dragged up into the glory of the Lord. And it felt like in the dream slash vision thing that my whole body was just going to break in God's glory. And, 
I've never used drugs, but I imagine that the best of them can't compete with this experience of being caught up in God's glory. And uh, I feel like my body's going to break. I feel like I'm, I'm about to see Jesus. And then I, I wake up and it's morning and I get dressed for the funeral and I get in the car. Seth probably doesn't remember this, but, but Seth and another friend were with us and I get in the car and I just say, it's done. Like my season of exhaustion and grinding is done. I don't know why or how. I just know that I saw a bit of Jesus's glory last night. And when I can see him, like everything else can really go to hell in a handbasket. Like I'm all right when I've had a moment in the glory of God. I'm okay. And I'm at my best in my spiritual life. Not when I'm out disciplining you. I'm not even looking at you at all, man. I'm at my best in my spiritual life when I've just encountered the glory of Jesus, the felt Messiah, experienced the fullness of who he is. And then I get up and say, I'll serve anybody. I'll wash any feet. I'll pray as long as you need me to. Just show me a little bit more of your face. And that's the heartbeat, the ethos of Christianity. It's not, watch me do more than you. It's, let's see more of him. Love him more. The heartbeat of Christianity is taste and see that the Lord is good. And from there, man, when the church has a Pentecostal season where they've laid on the ground and felt the glory of God really settle upon them, and they've been awestruck by the majesty of who God is, then Wesley gets up and says, I'll preach inside, I'll preach outside, I'll preach in that continent, this continent. I don't care. I've known the glory of God. It's not about me. It's just about him being proclaimed to the corners of the earth. Have you seen him? Have we seen him recently? Have we known his glory recently? Do we come in to sing songs or do we come in to exalt a risen savior? Seth, why don't you come for me? Worship team. I think we've been in a season of repentance. We've talked a lot about sin. We've talked a lot about uh, grieving the spirit, and that's all good and well. That's part of the Christian life it is. But I just sense that today God wants to say to us, remember that the heartbeat of Christianity is drinking the new wine of celebration. The heartbeat of Christianity is falling more in love with me, period. The heartbeat of Christianity is not looking at yourself at all, just gazing on me again. So if you stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close. An altar team, if you can.